Let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 5, verse 17 through 6, 2, 5, 17 through 6, 2. Let's hear God's word together. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are great and glorious. To know you and your son Jesus Christ is to have eternal life. There is no deeper satisfaction than we can know as your, as your image bearers uh, than to be in fellowship with you. And we ask, Lord, that our lives would be consistently making you look good in the eyes of those around us. We pray that our lives would adorn the truth that we profess. We pray that you would keep us from putting, through our, uh, putting a stumbling block before others through our uh, sinful actions and sinful attitudes. Indeed, we pray, Lord, that the church as a whole, our church, Christ Bible Church, would adorn the gospel. We pray that our community the love that exists, the unity that exists, the commitment to the truth that exists would function to make you attractive in the eyes of the world and be an instrument through which you draw many to yourself, Lord. We pray, Lord, also for the church's leadership that you would keep the pastors of this church from bringing dishonor on the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray, Lord, that the church's leadership at every level would adorn the gospel and make Jesus attractive in the eyes of others. Amen. I don't know what you expected of 1 Timothy as we started working through it a few weeks ago. Uh, you may have been surprised by the amount of attention that Paul gives to the right ordering of the church. Most of us recognize that we are called as individuals to bring glory and honor to God through the way we conduct ourselves. That's certainly biblical. That's certainly right. Uh, but sometimes we are less aware that it's not just the individual who is called by God to bring honor to him out there in the world, it's especially the church community as a whole. That's God's primary instrument for displaying his glory and his character to the world. And so naturally, 
Uh, scripture has a great deal to say, not just about how we as individuals ought to behave, but how the church as a whole should behave and conduct itself and arrange itself. So we've looked at how, what we should be doing, for instance, in chapter 2, when we gather together as God's people to worship, uh, gender distinctions in gathered worship, qualifications for office. We've looked at the way widows in the church should be cared for. Zach took us through that passage last week. And appropriately, uh, today we look at the way pastors should be addressed when they're doing well and when they're not doing so well. We will consider how to honor pastors, how to correct pastors, and how to appoint pastors, or not appoint pastors, as the case may be. How to honor pastors, how to correct pastors, how to appoint pastors, and finally, we'll consider how Christian slaves are to glorify God. How Christian slaves or servants are to glorify God. This was, of course, a widespread institution in the ancient world, deeply integrated into the structures of society in a way that is no longer true. And so naturally there are instructions for Christian slaves in the ancient world and how they can bring glory to God in their lowly uh, circumstances. But first, pastors. First thing to note, first admonition, is that elders, pastors, same thing, uh, who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. And the elders who rule well are probably being distinguished not from other faithful elders who rule less well, but from elders who have fallen into sin uh, or elders who have become compromised through false teaching, that sort of thing. And so the, the elders who rule well are being distinguished from that category. These elders who lead well should be considered worthy of double honor. What does that mean? Well, it means they should be considered worthy of respect But also, as verse 18 goes on to make clear, they should be considered worthy of compensation, financial support. Uh, It is fitting, Paul says, to support your pastors financially as well as to honor them, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's an interesting qualification. Uh, That phrase, beginning with especially, looks at a subset of the elders, those who are uniquely devoted to the arduous work of study and thinking and and communicating God's truth. Uh, I say it's interesting because according to chapter 3, all elders, all pastors, should be able to teach. They should know Scripture and be able to communicate it effectively to others. So it comes as something of a surprise then when we read especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What seems to be in view is that all elders have a basic competence in teaching and should teach in a variety of situations, but there will be some who especially devote their lives, devote their energies into preaching and teaching. And Paul emphasizes preaching and teaching because of the nature of the church. If you recall, chapter 3, Paul gives us a very significant description of the church. It is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is meant by God to declare the truth, defend the truth, and teach the truth. It's essential to its identity, and therefore effective, competent teaching will always be essential in every age to the health of the church. As the message of the church goes, so goes the church, and so naturally teaching, uh, expounding the truth and defending it has always had a very foundational place in the life of the church. This is not to deny for a moment that there are other essential gifts that God's people need if the body is to be healthy, 
Of course those gifts are needed, Paul says so elsewhere, but there is a primacy to preaching and teaching because ultimately if we lose the truth, we've lost everything, haven't we, as God's people? Note also the word that Paul uses here, labor, toil, agonize over preaching and teaching. Uh, This suggests that some of the elders, at least, will devote a substantial part of their energy and time and life to do the hard work of thinking clearly and well about the teaching of Scripture and its relevance to life and how to communicate it effectively to God's people. This is a call by implication to do the hard work of study, of thinking deeply and well about the things of God. I think it was John Piper who in one of his talks, John Piper's a, a retired pastor from Minneapolis, uh, in one of his talks, he says that what pastors are called to do, among other things, is put both elbows on either side of a book and think. So there, that's not the whole of ministry, of course, but there is a bookish dimension to ministry. And that's important to recognize because we live in, a, in an age that's, very, that's hyper-efficient, that wants things done quickly and now, and for that reason is gently suspicious of hard, disciplined study, reflection, thinking. It seems so time-consuming, so slow, there isn't perhaps immediate fruit, and it can be looked at with suspicion. But we need to recognize that, biblically speaking, uh, this is one of the basic things that pastors are called to do, to think to reflect so they can bring God's Word to bear on His people. And it should be uh, encouraged, recognized, even expected. So, those who rule well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, should be honored. What form does that honor take? It takes the form of respect, and as verse 18 clarifies, it takes the form of paying pastors, supporting them financially. I should note, though, parenthetically, uh, sometimes there's this idea that Christians are anti-intellectual, that they uh, are against serious thinking, um, you know, it's not essential to the Christian life. Uh, we need to recognize that, that that is a misrepresentation of the Bible's teaching. Uh, the Bible recognizes that we ought to glorify God not simply with our heart, but with our thinking. We are to serve God with all of our heart, yes, but with also with what? all of our mind. So this idea that Christianity and Christians are anti-intellectual should be set aside. It's just not the case. It's not been the case historically. And by implication of what Paul says, you know, make sure you have people who are thinking. It's evident that this is prized. Okay, parenthesis aside, go back to verse 18. Uh, Honor your elders, support them financially. Why? What's the reason, verse 18? Well, that's what Scripture says. It's what the Bible requires. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Here Paul quotes Deuteronomy and says, you know, the oxen, when it was doing the work of separating the husk from the corn, was allowed to enjoy the fruit of its labor and eat a little bit, right? So if you work, you should get paid, right? That's the idea. If you work, you should eat. It's a biblical principle. And what applies to oxen applies also to pastors, by application. Um, Paul then quotes also Luke's gospel, intriguingly, words of Jesus, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, I say it's intriguing because he quotes these two passages as Scripture. He has Deuteronomy, which is Scripture, 
And then he has Luke's gospel, also identified as what? Scripture. Isn't that intriguing? This is the first century. Early Christian community, Apostle Paul, is already recognizing the gospel of Luke as being on the same plane of authority as Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Uh, We see here an indication that what we recognize as divinely inspired books, like the gospel of Luke, are already being recognized as such in the early Christian community. So Paul quotes the Old Testament, the gospel of Luke, to say, support your pastors financially. Uh, Now, the Apostle Paul will, in certain special situations, forego that right. Uh, You can read all about that in 1 Corinthians, but that is the exception, not the norm. God says that it is right and good to financially support those in church leadership uh, so that they can devote themselves to the work of ministry. The work of ministry will be done better, more effectively, more efficiently when those Uh, who are in leadership roles are set apart from their ordinary responsibilities so they can focus on church work. So honor your pastors. That's the first thing that this passage says. Uh, Honor those who rule well. Give them double honor, respect, and financial support. But what about those who don't rule well? What about those who fall into sin? That's the next thing that Paul addresses here, starting in verse 19. There are three issues when it comes to correcting pastors. Uh, You need evidence. That's number one. Uh, Beyond evidence, you need public rebuke. If it comes to that, they need to be corrected publicly. And finally, these principles need to be applied impartially. Those are the three things that the Apostle Paul says about the correction of pastors. So first thing, verse 19 Don't admit a charge against an elder or pastor except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the Old Testament standard of evidence. It applies in the New Testament as well. Uh, Just because someone claims that something is the case, it isn't necessarily so. A claim is not the same thing as adequate evidence. This is not well understood, seemingly, in our days. Uh, A claim of wrongdoing doesn't by itself prove it. You need two or three witnesses before a charge is even considered. And of course, there has to be some sort of procedure of this kind, because in the nature of the case, being a pastor is a public office, and pastors are subject to smear campaigns, to all sorts of rumors. And before we give credence to those kinds of rumors, uh, before we accept an accusation as being true, there needs to be adequate evidence and proof. So we are not to give credence about every uh, accusation that might be made against a church leader. There needs to be sufficient proof, two or three witnesses, to demonstrate that a sin, an egregious sin, has indeed been committed. Uh, committed. Is there adequate evidence? That's first. Second, those who have been exposed as having committed some heinous or egregious sin through the testimony of witnesses, or those who simply persist in sin after having been corrected, if they're found out to have continued in sin or guilty of some heinous sin, the church's response, the response of the church leadership, should be to rebuke them in the presence of all. The presence of all is the gathered assembly. Pastors who have who are demonstrated, uh, shown to have sinned, need to be publicly rebuked and corrected. 
their error needs to be condemned publicly, exposed, and rebuked. And this is so that the rest may stand in fear. The rest here probably refers to other elders. So other elders would learn from the misconduct of the sinning elder, but by implication, it's also the rest of the believers in the assembly. When they see their leader rebuked for sin, they learn to stand in fear of going down the same path. What Paul is saying here is that church leadership is not above accountability, correction, and even church discipline if it comes to that. All of us, including the church leadership, is accountable to God and ought to walk in a way that's honorable. And if elders persist in sin, they are to be publicly corrected and reprimanded. God is holy, and he has called his people to be a holy people who reflect his character. And when there is persistent, unrepentant sin, church discipline is appropriate. Public correction is appropriate. Now, Lord willing, the sin will have been addressed before it gets to that stage. Elders will have been privately corrected, and they will have uh, mended their ways and repented. That's the first step, like Matthew 18 suggests. If you have a sinning brother, you take them aside, you correct them, and if they repent, you've won your brother and you move on. But if there is a refusal to repent of sin, or the sin is particularly heinous and egregious, public rebuke is the appropriate course of action. Now, imagine you're Timothy. You know from the rest of the letter that there's false teaching going around. It may have infected some of the other church leaders. Perhaps some of the other church leaders have fallen into sin. How would you feel if you're in Timothy's shoes when you read these instructions? Oh boy. We're talking here in the abstract of what to do with an elder when it happens. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to look at a person's face, to have a real flesh and blood human being in front of you that you've known perhaps for years. The temptation perhaps is to rationalize why Paul's principle wouldn't be applied in this specific instance. It's an emotionally grueling thing to discipline a church leader. It's a difficult thing. And so Paul says, be impartial. He gives them this solemn charge in verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. Don't make up your mind in advance about how things are going to go, and don't be biased towards this person or that person. Pay attention to the principles, pay attention to the facts of the case, not the person involved. Don't allow your relational entanglements to distort your judgment. What are the pertinent facts? What are the relevant biblical principles? And you need to harden yourself to apply them regardless of what relational cost you will need to endure. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy. Please God, not men. And actually that's difficult to do because we want to hold on to long-standing relationships. Or we wonder, how, how is the church going to do without this individual? They're indispensable. Nobody's indispensable. Christ is indispensable, but he will build up his church. And in the right circumstances, everyone is subject to this kind of correction. So Paul says to Timothy, apply the rules without bias. 
Don't consider the person involved or your relationship to them. Consider the facts of the case and consider what I've just said and apply them. Now, you might be thinking, man, what a relief not to be an elder. Be put in that situation where I've got to apply these principles and risk damaging the relationship. And yes, it is a hard thing, so pray for your church's leaders that they would indeed have the courage and strength to do what is right, not easy. Absolutely, that's one implication. Pray for those that God has given to us as leaders. But this text has also implications for you. At at some point as a follower of Jesus Christ, you too will have to choose between acting according to principle and acting for the sake of saving the relationship. If you want to be faithful to Jesus, that is a dilemma that at one time or another you too probably will face. For example, let's say you've got this witty friend who's always got a joke ready to go, you know. Uh, and the jokes sometimes straddle the fence between appropriate and obscene. Many times the jokes are on the wrong side of that line. And things don't appear to be getting better. What are you going to do? I mean, the last thing in the world we want to be thought of as is not having a sense of humor, right? We don't want to be preachy. We can be witty too, see, right? So there is a pressure to let it go, let it slide. But we also know that obscene joking is contrary to the will of God. It is sin. And there is a responsibility, especially if this is a friend, for you to lovingly, respectfully, prayerfully, thoughtfully pull them aside and say, hey, I appreciate your wit sometimes, but sometimes it is contrary to Scripture. You you say things that are not right for a Christian to say, and you need to consider this more than you do. Now, that's that's a hard conversation to have. But these kinds of conversations where we pull someone aside and correct them, is some, is, uh, that's something that at one time or another all believers are called to do. At the end of the day, nobody is, is going to be able to serve Jesus faithfully if they fear man more than Jesus Christ. If you're going to live an obedient life, you have to care more about pleasing Jesus than pleasing people. And sometimes that, that means risking the relationship. So, Timothy, stand firm, apply the principles according to the facts of the case, not according to any bias. Now, Paul goes on to describe how elders should be appointed, and more specifically, how they shouldn't be appointed. Part of the way you avoid the difficult situation envisioned in verse 20 is by paying attention to the people that you appoint to the office of pastor or elder in the first place, right? Part of the way you avoid this difficult situation with church discipline is by paying attention to the guys that you are pointing to the office of elder to begin with. So Paul says to Timothy, this is how you shouldn't appoint elders. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't rush to make someone a pastor. Nor take part in the sins of others. By implication, if you are careless in the way you appoint pastors in the church, and they create problems through their sin, you are responsible, Timothy, for those sins. Keep yourself pure. In other words, don't make any hasty appointments to the office of pastor. Be pure. Verse 24 further elaborates this. The sins of some people are conspicuous. You can look at some people and go, yep, 
not qualified for office. Uh, there's a very clear sin. It, it's a very clear situation. Uh, but the sins of others appear later. Have you, ha, have you had this experience where you meet someone, fellow Christian, and initially you think, wow, amazing. This, if anybody follows Jesus, this person follows Jesus. They have an amazing character. They're very likable. They're good with people. They're omnicompetent, competent in everything under the sun. Look at this person. Amazing person. And then you get to know them a little bit better. Time goes on, and then the faults and flaws and sins and cracks become evident. And you go, ah, wasn't aware of this. This was not the first impression that I got. Uh, as you spend time with people, as time goes on, you get a clearer perception of their strengths and weaknesses. And therefore, Timothy, be slow. Take your time. Get to know people. Don't go based on first impressions. Watch their life. Take your time and see if there's anything over the course of a longer period of time that needs to be considered. The opposite side of the coin is that good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Good works, like sin, have a way of rearing their head over time. And so perhaps individuals that you may not have initially considered, if given enough time, gradually begin, you begin to see the work of God in them and you say, hey, this is someone that God may be calling to the office of elder. But the crucial thing here is don't be hasty, careless in the appointment of pastors. The great Western theologian St. Augustine had reason to grieve over the hasty appointment of a bishop. When Augustine was nearly 70 years of age, he offered to resign his post as bishop because of his sorrow at one of the individuals that he appointed uh, as bishop. It's about seven years before he died. Augustine writes to the Bishop of Rome, I have inflicted a tragedy in my hastiness and lack of due precaution. And he admits that he is tortured by fear and anguish. Imagine that, great man of God, distinguished Western theologian, tortured by the rash appointment of a bishop. He's worried about the souls of those under the care of that bishop. The church might follow him into error, or people might simply abandon the faith. And Augustine feels responsible for this. So at the end of his life, one historian says that Augustine uh, plastered penitential psalms on the wall of his room. Penitential psalms are psalms of repentance, confession of sin, remorse, and so on. And, and the historian argues that it's especially this kind of failure hasty appointment of a bishop that haunted him and caused him grief even at the very end of his life. The warning to us is clear, don't rush. Don't be hasty in putting uh, individuals in positions of power and authority. Err on the side of caution, not haste, when it comes to ordaining pastors. Now before we look at responsibilities of slaves, Look at that parenthetical comment in verse 23, sort of embedded here in the middle of Paul's instructions to Timothy about how he shouldn't appoint elders. Uh, the, par the parentheses are appropriate, aren't they? No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. What causes Paul to go there? Uh, perhaps it's the reference in verse 22 to keep yourself pure. 
Perhaps Timothy had an overly stringent understanding of what purity required, and Paul knew this, and so he says, hey, speaking of purity, uh, don't just drink water. Now, we, we need to be clear. Scripture condemns drunkenness as sin, but the moderate consumption of alcohol is legitimate for believers and can be glorifying to God. Uh, but for whatever reason, Timothy abstained from alcohol, drank only water, and Paul says, hey, drink a little wine uh, for the sake of your stomach, for the sake of your frequent ailments. Wine was understood in the ancient world to have medicinal properties. He says, take a little wine. Now, this little verse is interesting for all sorts of reasons, but one reason it's interesting is it shows that even if you are a godly person with lots of faith, healing doesn't necessarily happen. There is a lie that floats around certain circles, and the lie is this, if you have enough faith in God, then he will always heal you. Certainly God does heal people today. Certainly God continues to perform miraculous healings. We should affirm that. And when we pray for healing, there should be an expectation that God does heal and can heal. And that's right and biblical. It's not right and biblical to say that he always heals. Right? It's interesting, isn't it? Paul, you know, if Paul always healed people, could have prayed for Timothy, and then his stomach pains were gone. That's not what happened. He doesn't heal him. He recommends a little wine with the implication that this is an ongoing health issue and it needs to be treated using wine. So is it true that it is always God's will to heal you? Well, yes, insofar as there's a resurrection and there is no sickness and death. In that sense, yes, it's always God's will to heal you. One day he'll raise you from the grave and there will be no more illness. In that sense, yes. But in the immediate sense, is, he always, uh, is it always his will to heal you of your sickness right now today? No, not always. Sometimes, yes, we should pray with confidence. Uh, but not always, and there's no biblical guarantee that that's always his will. Note also that just because you're involved in church ministry like Timothy doesn't mean that you're spared the, the basic troubles and sorrows of life. Timothy was a man of God, called to do hard things for the Lord, and he had stomach issues. Sometimes we think if I serve the Lord, well, that means I get a pass from the ordinary troubles of life. No, his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient to strengthen you to deal with ordinary troubles as well as the Troubles of ministry. Right. So here Paul transitions from how to deal with pastors, good pastors, those who rule well, how to correct bad pastors, and how to think about appointing pastors to positions uh, of authority. Then he moves on to slaves. And uh, there's a lot to be said here about slavery in the ancient world, which we don't have time to say. Let me just give you some broad principles about the New Testament's view of ancient slavery. Number one, we should make an initial distinction in our minds between the chattel slavery, 19th century America, and the kind of slavery that was practiced in the ancient world. Those are not identical. In the ancient world, race wasn't uh, the essential feature of slavery that it was in the 19th century, for instance. So let's just note that off the bat. Uh, secondly, we need to note that the Bible unequivocally condemns kidnapping and selling of human beings. Those who do so should be executed. The death penalty is appropriate according to scripture, for those who steal people and sell them. Exodus 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. In other words, not just the person stealing and selling, but even the person buying is held accountable. The New Testament parts ways with ancient conceptions of slavery. The New Testament does not view slaves as property. They have rights. So for instance, Colossians 4.1, 
Paul tells Christian masters, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That's, that's interesting language. The implication is that the, the slave, the servant, has rights. There needs to be a fairness principle that defines the relationship of master to servant. You can't treat them as property. They have rights as God's image bearers, and those rights should be honored. Treat them justly and fairly. Note also that there are limits placed by Scripture on the master's power over the servant. Uh, Ephesians 6.9, masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening. That's an interesting statement. Basic to the institution of slavery was what? Do it or else, right? The threat, if you don't do it, you're going to get in trouble, you're going to get yours. Uh, Paul says, Master, stop your threatening. Don't treat people, don't, don't treat even your servants harshly and threateningly. There are limits placed on the master's power over his servant, and Paul goes on to say, knowing that he who, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Recognize, master, that you are under another master, Jesus Christ. And the moral law of Christ, everything that Christ says about how you should treat your brother in Christ, applies to your relationship with your servant. We see how it's very different from the ancient world. That puts limits on the authority of a master over a servant. Don't treat them harshly. Don't threaten. And finally, the New Testament sees a fundamental equality between master and servant. Both are made in the image of God. They are more fundamentally human, more fundamentally alike than they, than they are master and servant. And certainly in the church, Galatians 3, 27 through 28 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What we have in Jesus Christ is more important than these social distinctions that separate us. The New Testament vision is that masters and serv servants are more alike than they are different. They are fundamental, fundamentally equal in the sight of God. So yes, slavery did exist, but the New Testament, we shouldn't assume that the New Testament condones uh, even ancient slavery in the way that it was practiced. It puts in place these radical uh, parameters for how masters and servants should relate to one another. It is precisely because there is a basic equality between master and servant, if they're Christians, right? They're brother and sister in Christ, brother and brother in Christ. Uh, it's precisely for that reason that Paul has to say what he says in verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. The master's a Christian, I'm a Christian, we're brothers, we go to the same church. I don't need to work as hard. My brother, after all, fellow Christian. No, no, says Paul. The fact that your master is a Christian means you should work harder. Or at least as hard as you would work for a non-Christian. Why? Because they're your brother. They're family. The person benefiting from your labor is a fellow Christian. And that's actually a motivation to work harder. Like one really significant implication, modern implication of that point, is that we should not expect to compensate fellow Christians less than we would a non-Christian for services rendered. 
We should not expect to compensate a fellow Christian less for services that they provide for us than we would a non-Christian. Right? You have a, someone from church remodeling your kitchen. Don't think to yourself, according to this passage, well, they're a brother in Christ. I'm going to get a deal. I don't have to pay them what I would pay the non-Christian uh, to remodel my kitchen. Now, out of the goodness of, they, of their heart, they might offer to do it for less, and that's fine, but that shouldn't be your baseline expectation. Your baseline expectation should be, I want them to do well. Right? This is my brother, after all. I want them to, to flourish financially, and I want to compensate them as, at least as well as I would compensate an unbeliever. Just because we are brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't mean that we are right to be stingy towards one another. So, yes, they're your brothers. Work even harder precisely for that reason. And then the essential command here to the slaves in verse 1, excuse me, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of honor. They're an authority over you. They might not be great, but respect them because they're an authority. But what's the reason? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You're a slave, right, in the ancient world. Life is not great if you're a slave. Paul says, listen, Christian slaves, carefully. I have something very significant to tell you. Conduct yourself in such a way that you put no obstacle between your master and Jesus Christ. You should behave in such a way that there is no reason for your master to despise God because of the way you conduct yourself. What is utterly fascinating about this is Paul assumes that the Christian slave is living for the glory of God. It's not about you and your self-fulfillment and what you want out of life. The assumption is that as a Christian slave, your primary passion in life is to bring honor to the name of God. And then he says, act accordingly. How different this is from the way we think as moderns. What is at the center? The self. What do I want? What fulfills me? By implication, Paul is saying, no, no, no. For the Christian, it's not the self that is central. It's the glory of God. And life should be lived on the principle of bringing honor to him, making him look good in the eyes of all those around us and not putting any impediment between them and Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing, in essence, in Titus 2, 9 through 10, where he says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing so that in everything they may adorn, make attractive the doctrine of God our Savior. Slaves, it's not about you. Free individuals, it's not about you. You know what life is about? It's about God. He's at the center. And really the only question is, how can my life count for his glory? How can my life make Jesus attractive in the eyes of others? Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They're seeing your works, but then through your works, like a transparent window, they're seeing God's goodness and glory, and their response is to praise him. What this means for believers is that there are no ordinary moments in life. Every moment is pregnant with the possibility, excuse me, 
of making Jesus look great and glorious in the eyes of others, and every moment has the possibility of diminishing him in the eyes of others. So your attitudes and your words and your actions are never without significance. They are constantly communicating something about God. The only question is, what are your actions and attitudes and words communicating about God? What do you say about God when you show up on Monday morning and complain like everybody else? And you exhibit that same joyless drudgery that everybody else exhibits. What are you communicating about God? And conversely, what are you communicating about God when in the midst of life's troubles you rejoice because Christ is everything to you, what are you communicating to your wife, your husband, and your children? If you're a follower of Jesus, every moment is full of possibility. You can, through your right response, make God look attractive in the eyes of others. Think about what encouragement that would have brought to a Christian slave in a dead-end situation. It's a hard life to be a slave. But Paul is saying to them, just because you are a slave in difficult, constricted circumstances, doesn't mean that you are not essential to God's program for revealing himself to the world. You are not, Christian slave, fundamentally a possession of another. You belong to Christ. And Christ is at work in the world bringing salvation to people. And you, slave are playing an essential and integral part in God's plan of redeeming the world. You may be despised by worldly standards, but in the plan of God, you have taken your place as a player in the great drama of redemption. And even in your difficult circumstances as a slave, there is the opportunity to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Think about how liberating that is. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. They're difficult like those of a slave, less difficult. Regardless of what your circumstances are, there is a call from God to bring glory to him, to reflect his greatness and goodness to others through the way that we work, through through the way that we respond to adversity, through the way that we conduct ourselves in general. To belong to Jesus Christ is to be truly free, regardless of outward circumstances. The Book of Common Prayer says, Uh, The service of God, or it it speaks of God whose service is perfect freedom. In a life of total submission to Jesus, seeking his glory to make much of him in everything, we find that we are liberated. Many people are outwardly free, but in bondage to sin. But those who belong to Jesus, they might be outwardly in chains, but inwardly they have been liberated by Christ, and they are living with a high and holy purpose of bringing glory to God. That's all of our calling. It's not just the privilege of the few. It's the privilege of every one of God's children. We all are called in everything that we do, whether you eat or drink, in every aspect of life, we are called to live in such a way that God is glorified through us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to see our lives with fresh eyes. Help us to see that even in the seemingly ordinary humdrum moments of life, 
there is an opportunity to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. Help us through your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word to live honorably in everything, commending Christ to those around us. Amen.